This is Dealing Death, the podcast, episode two. The website for CBS 12 News in West Palm Beach, Florida has a podcast section, and you find it in the drop-down menu. I hope lots of you have listened to the first episode, and you're back with me to see where all of this goes. This is Mike Magnoli reporting again. I've just had a phone call with Javon McFarland's attorney. His name is Jack Fleischman, and I was struck by something that he told me, because in our day and age of people shouting, fake news, at TV crews, it's refreshing to hear what he said. So he said that he respects the job that the media does, and he'll talk with Javon about giving me an interview. He said he was intrigued by the premise of this series, looking at the issue of charging drug dealers with murder. He says, I get the concept. I'll ask my client if he wants to speak with you. Javon is being held without bond, charged with first-degree murder for the death of Yanella Figueroa. He's accused of selling her heroin laced with fentanyl, and she died after taking it. I'm about to play an interview for you with Indian River County Sheriff Eric Flowers. Now, you heard a clip of him in the first episode, but this will be longer. Before he was sheriff, he was actually the spokesman for the sheriff's office, so he's comfortable on camera, and he's good to work with. Some law enforcement agencies in South Florida that I cover probably would not have participated in this series, but Flowers was more than willing. So I'm in the sheriff's office here with my partner, Chris, and he's running the camera, and the sheriff is getting over a little bit of a cold here, so you might notice that his voice is a little stuffy, but he holds back no punches. He says that drug dealers should be scared about what's happening. If they sell drugs, specifically fentanyl, uh, to or other opioids to people in our community, and they overdose and die, we're going to seek murder charges on them. We're going to make sure that they know uh, that they're going to be held accountable for that person's death. You are also telling me that Seminole County um, has kind of over the years become good at this because they're, they're doing it so frequently um, so that you're kind of in a way use, using what they're doing as a instruction manual. Talk to me some more about that. Yeah, through the Florida Sheriff's Association, uh, you know, we've become close with Seminole County. They're a, a leading agency in the state on many things, and uh, specifically on these drug overdoses cases. They've had, I believe, almost 30 of these uh, arrests that they've made for murder charges. Uh, our drug unit is traveling up to meet with them to do some training, some additional training on this. And uh, our goal is to, uh, you know, be able to make these cases more efficiently. We also recognize that there's problems with the law that, um, you know, we still need assistance. We need some legislative change. And so you're going to see one of the items again this year from the Florida Sheriff's Association is that we're attempting to add the terms proximate cause of death uh, to the law so that when we do have one of these overdose cases, we're able to effectively charge someone uh, if we can show that this, uh, you know, the drug was part of the proximate cause of death for the person. So we're hoping to make some legislative change this year that will help make these cases easier. Yeah, so let me jump in here to explain a little more about that. The sheriff and other sheriffs in Florida want lawmakers to add language to the existing statutes. If someone dies after taking drugs, but they have a long list of medical problems or there are other circumstances, then it might be hard to prove that it was the drugs that killed them. So Sheriff Flowers is saying even if there's doubt, but drugs laced with fentanyl were in play, the charges should be applicable. Wow. So one of the challenges that prosecutors would have is uh, many of these folks who are addicted to drugs also have underlying health issues, whether it's, uh, you know, enlarged heart, diabetes, you know, many other issues. And many people turn to drugs because they're self-medicating from other illness, uh, illnesses and, and ailments. And uh, essentially, uh, by adding that term proximate cause of death, 
Um, it eases the burden of proof on the prosecutors. Uh, right now, when a body goes to the medical examiner, uh, they may say, well, yes, they had it in a large heart, but they also were taking drugs. Difficult to say that it was specifically the drugs that caused that death, which is what we're having to do right now to make these murder cases. If that term proximate cause of death is added, uh, the fact that the drugs are present in the person's system would allow us to make those charges. Sheriff, I don't know how comfortable you are talking about it, but a, a lot of people have been touched by addiction. A lot of people have had a loved one or a friend die of an overdose. And I wonder if you could tell us, has this impacted you personally? Has this crisis affected your family personally? Uh, so specifically to my family, uh, it's been many years, but um, I had a distant cousin uh, in uh, the, the northern states who um, was addicted to drugs and committed other crimes and ultimately was imprisoned uh, as a result of that. Um, no close family members uh, that to speak of, but I did have a distant cousin who, who, who did have a, a major issue with drugs uh, many years ago. I think I was a little kid when it happened, um, but I recognize and see this, the pain in families every single day uh, being in my position and um, just having, you know, families reach out to us and thank us for our efforts. You know, in this specific case that you're focusing on right now, the family was very grateful uh, that we, uh, you know, moved forward with this investigation so fast. Um, you know, within a few hours of this death, our deputies and detectives were able to trace where the drugs came from, make a move, make, you know, move in and get this guy uh, who was ultimately responsible for that. So I'm super proud of our team uh, for all their efforts and what they've done in this case. Just talk to me in general about how much a problem um, fentanyl has become in Indian River County, what you've seen in terms of trends over the past two or three years. So we started hearing about fentanyl in Palm Beach County and in Miami, south of us. And uh, like many things, uh, it starts moving its way north. And um, unfortunately, we've reached a point where um, it's here. It's uh, as bad as it was in Martin County and south um, several years ago. We finally reached that level. And so um, that's why I've dedicated our team of street investigators and long-term investigators to this problem. Uh, you know, when I took office, we grew our drug unit uh, by, I don't know, five or six additional detectives uh, who are out there working every single day. Um, and we're actively looking at the potential to adding um, detectives assigned to just overdoses. That's a, a consideration. Uh, many other counties have people who just respond to overdoses. Um, you know, we're at a point where every overdose gets the attention of our drug unit. Um, many of them are non-fatal. Many of them are, you know, we use, uh, you know, Narcan-like products to, to bring people back to life. Um, many times uh, EMS brings people back to life. And so every one of those overdoses gets a follow-up investigation. Uh, and it's taking more and more of our time than it was even a year ago. Um, but it's important that we do this and that we track backwards to see who's bringing this into our county, who's bringing it into our country, and uh, ultimately make uh, charges on these. There was some collaboration here. Yes. You, you guys hooked up with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office since his home area, since his turf was in Palm Beach County. Um, just talk to me about that coordination and how, um, how important it is for these different agencies to be sharing information and to be working together because these guys have a big range, right? Palm Beach County, his product is coming up here at Indian River. For sure. Um, 
So uh, along the East Coast here, the Southern East Coast of Florida, uh, all of us sheriffs have a great relationship. Uh, Sheriff Bradshaw has been fantastic to me. He's been a, a mentor and a friend uh, with me coming into this role. And uh, you know, his team works seamlessly with, with our team uh, to make this case. And uh, I can say that I have the same relationship with Sheriff Snyder and Sheriff Mascara along the way. Um, you know, we really work together well and uh, partnership and collaboration is the, the, the key to making many of these cases because drug dealers, uh, they don't care about jurisdiction. They don't care about uh, communities. They'll, they'll cross lines, they'll cross boundaries, uh, and they will deliver their drugs anywhere and they will sell drugs anywhere. Uh, and we work together to stop that. It doesn't matter to us which county it happened in. We're going to track them down and we're going to make those cases. Do, do you guys find that most of this product is coming from Palm Beach County? Uh, some of the fentanyl that we see comes from Palm Beach. Uh, we see it coming really from, from all over, uh, but I can tell you that it's crossing our borders. Uh, it's coming in uh, either through the southern border along Mexico, uh, or it's coming in through the mail a lot of times. We see it actually shipped directly from China as well. For the person who maybe they have an addict um, in their life, um, and there's a shame factor, this you know it, it's it's really difficult to talk about it's difficult for families to know what the right thing to do is but what do you want your message to be if someone at home sees this story and 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 their significant other or someone in their family uh, is involved with this uh, i would say that um you know there's no shame in asking for help and uh, we continue to send that message about mental health uh, we probably don't send it as much uh, in the drug side, and I think we need to say that more. There's no shame in asking for help. The biggest key I see, though, is that people have to want to get help, and there are many addicts out there that that don't. Uh, I, I you know think of it in the same way that I think about homelessness. Um, you know, we're not going to arrest our way out of homelessness. There are people who want to live in the woods. There are drug addicts out there who want to continue to take drugs. And until they make that mental decision, they make that emotional decision to say, I'm done, I've had enough, I've watched too many friends die. Um, unfortunately, even if a family wants to help them, they're probably not gonna get that help. And so it's just critical that um, we keep our arms open and the moment that somebody steps forward and says, I want help, that we offer it. And that that's, goes for families, that goes for law enforcement, that goes for social workers, anybody who's in the field. If somebody comes to you and says, I need help, I'm an addict, we got to get them that help because that's the time that they're willing and able to get that assistance. And if we don't wrap our arms around them and help them at that point, we can miss that golden opportunity. Good answer. Uh, I guess this is my last question. This is a little tricky one, but... Some might say that this is overzealous, that this approach, charging with first-degree murder for a drug dealer, um, is too heavy-handed. They might argue, well, this person, um, they, they didn't know. They weren't trying to hurt another person. They weren't trying to kill another person. Sure. Um, so they might look at this as there's a degree of cruelty in it. What would you say to that? To somebody who thinks that charging uh, someone who is selling fentanyl uh, as a first-degree murder charge says that it's uh, too harsh of a punishment. I would tell them that um, they may be thinking of drugs from the 60s and 70s when we had low THC marijuana. The drugs that are being passed on the street today, the fentanyl that we're seeing, the pure methamphetamine that's coming into our country through our southern border, um, it's not anything like the drugs that, you know, our parents knew and that they knew as teenagers. These are deadly drugs. They're killing people. They have the potential to kill law enforcement when they encounter them. Uh, and these absolutely should be charged as murder cases.
So Sheriff Flowers has just summarized why Florida is doing this. You look in his eyes, they're blue and focused, and you can see that he is going all in on this initiative to use murder charges because he believes in this. He's not just following orders. He's not doing this because someone up the chain of command is making him. I think it's important to tell you that because sometimes in stories with cops I hear, well, I was just doing what my commander told me to do. Sheriff Eric Flowers is the one in charge in his county. But now I want to introduce you to another guy, and he's under the sheriff's command. The detective who worked on this case, involving Yanela Figueroa's overdose. Now this guy is often undercover, and his work with drug dealers and dangerous criminals means that I had to conceal his identity for TV. Remember, in addition to this podcast, I'm also doing a series of special reports for our news shows. So we're inside an auditorium in the Indian River County Sheriff's headquarters. We've rigged up some lights and we've turned some of the lights off in the room to create shadows. This is a silhouette interview. I also let this detective keep on his baseball cap and a COVID face mask. So picture this, we're sitting in a dark room. It's about the size of a hotel ballroom. And this is where presentations can happen and special events. But we're huddled in one corner of the room to create the setting for this interview. And I'm asking about the investigation and the form that the drugs came in was noteworthy. The big thing was the capsules that were found in her room. Um, even just working narcotics here in this county, it's not a common way that they're packaged here. It's usually in a, in a plastic baggie, in a powder, white powder form. The fact that they were in, in capsules was um, one of the first times that I've seen it in this county packaged like that. What do you mean in a capsule? They were in a, a gel capsule. So like you could buy empty gel capsules online um, or anywhere. Um, they even sell them at some of these gas stations. They buy the empty gel caps and they fill them with fentanyl and they close and twist them up and that's how they package them for sale. So when you go in there and you see that, what's your instinct telling you? It's an outlier. You've not seen that before. So what does your gut say at that point? Uh, it's unique. Um, possible that we would see it again if we did come across the suspect. Um, they usually stay pretty consistent on how they package narcotics themselves. So, And that was the case here in this case. And the detective says there's a lot of street names for this. That's relevant because the sheriff's office looked in Yanella's phone and they found text messages between her and the accused dealer. She had him programmed into her contacts as Palm Beach Boy. And she had him saved as um, Palm Beach Boy. All of what I'm about to tell you in this next part is detailed in court documents. When the sheriff's office put it together that Palm Beach Boy in Yanella's phone was the source of the drugs, they reached out to their counterparts in the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, and they sent a text message to Palm Beach Boy posing as a customer, and they made arrangements to buy drugs. And this sounds a little funny, but stay with me here. They were going to buy the drugs at a drugstore. Investigators say that Javon McFarlane would meet his customers in the parking lot of a Walgreens. Now, outside the pharmacy, but on the property nonetheless, that's where deputies say they caught McFarlane in the act of selling. And they say that the gel caps they found at Yanella's scene matched what McFarlane was carrying when they busted him. My partner Chris and I went to the Walgreens. I wanted to get a lay of the land, so we parked and we looked around. We got some locator video for the story. And while we were there, some of the people who were loitering in the parking lot thought that we were undercover cops. And some thought that we might be there to buy drugs ourselves. Yeah, 
Do you remember when we were at that uh, drugstore? Yeah. What happened there? Well, I was getting B-roll um, of the pharmacy, you know, just getting the shots, and you had walked off to, uh, to look, do some investigation on the other side. And when I was shooting, uh, this guy came up to me in pretty broken English, and, uh, you know, he was saying, you know, if you give me money, um, I can tell you uh, where they are. And I was like, where, who are? And he was like, the people you're looking for. And I said, well, I'm just a news photojournalist, so I'm just getting shots of the building. And he was like, oh, okay, and then walked off. Do you think that he thought you were a cop? I think he did think um, I was a cop. Maybe he saw us both get out of the car and you were dressed up in your suit and, you know, maybe I was just getting shots for court evidence. I don't know. I don't look like a cop. I look like the farthest thing from a cop you could imagine. Well, I went into the pharmacy um, to take a look around because found out that Jovan's girlfriend worked in the pharmacy and she was kind of a lookout. So when the customer would pull into the lot, according to police, she would spot them and say, hey, they're here. She'd call Jovan up and say, hey, your, your customers are here. And then he would ride his bicycle over um, and sell the stuff. So I went in the pharmacy to see if I could find the girlfriend. Um, and I couldn't. I don't know if she works at the register um, or in the pharmacy or she could also be a security guard because I noticed that that pharmacy has like uh, one of those private companies that does security. So the whole like vibe there was weird, don't you think? It was very strange. Um, there's always people hanging around there. You know, we were kind of sitting there at the end parked. You know, people were staring at us, giving us looks. So I think we were definitely disrupting their business for the day. We were interrupting what usually happens there. Like, we kind of stick out like a sore thumb. Although we should tell them that we're not in a marked news unit. We're not in a car that has, like, CBS 12, um, you know, plastered all over the side of it. We're in an unmarked car just hanging out in the parking lot. Actually, the more I'm talking about it, Chris, we probably did look really suspicious. We did. I mean, you had your men in black suit and your Ray-Bans on, so that didn't help either. Okay. So I can see you being mistaken for like a Secret Service agent, but not for um, an undercover narcotics officer. But anyway. I don't know. These guys are professional lookouts, so. Did you get a sense from the people that were loitering around um, that some of them might have been there to engage in illegal activity? I would say... I mean, I'm not a professional, but it did seem like it. Um, you know, they were kind of sitting over there through the drive-through of the wall of the pharmacy, and uh, yeah, it did seem like it. I got that vibe. You're just like, you're looking around at the people, and you kind of feel the energy of of the parking lot, and it just seems like people were waiting to buy drugs or waiting to sell drugs. Um, it's not an awesome spot. Put it that way. Yeah, I think at that corner you have your legal drugs inside and your illegal drugs outside. In, indeed. Um, I wouldn't want to go there at night, just put it that way. No, I've been there at night for crime scenes, so I would say that that area is probably not the best of areas. So after the drugstore, we get back in the car, and Chris and I go to the last known address for Javon McFarland. It's right around the corner from the Walgreens. 
The house and the Walgreens are in a part of West Palm Beach where the streets are a little rough, as you heard Chris mention, and we cover a lot of crime in the area. I knock on the door, and no one answers, so no one's home, I guess. I turn and start walking back to our car, and just then, a minivan pulls into the driveway. The driver of the minivan is a black guy with long dreadlocks. He's tall and slender. I tell him I'm a reporter and I'm looking for Javon. I'm his dad, the man tells me. So what do you want? I ask if Javon lived here with his father before his arrest. He doesn't answer. And then he says again, what do you want? I tell him I'm working on a story about Javon's case. The father says he knows it's about drugs, but he doesn't know anything else. Then I ask, do you know they're charging your son with murder? The guy looks at me, emotionless as far as I can tell, no visible reaction. And then he asks me, did he kill somebody? I say, a girl that he sold to died. At this, the guy says he's got to go. He gets back in the minivan and he pulls away. I gesture for him to stop for a second and he does, only long enough for me to hand my business card through the window. I tell him that's my phone number. If Javon wants to talk, tell him I'd like to hear from him. I'll be fair. He should have an opportunity to tell me his side of this story. And I see the guy put my card in the cup holder of the minivan and the center console. Somehow I get the sense the message will not be relayed. I don't think that number is coming out of that cup holder. But it's okay, because remember I told you at the beginning of the episode, Javon's attorney, Jack Fleischman, knows that I'm on this. I've also reached out to the prosecutor. She doesn't want to be recorded or go on the record because she says she wouldn't want to hurt the chances of seating a jury if there's media coverage of this before trial, but she will talk to me on background. So Indian River County is a small county, and it has a small court. Because of that, a lot of this is being handled by the next county to the south, that's St. Lucie County, and there's a bigger and uh, more resourceful court system in that county. Anastasia M. Norman is an assistant state attorney based in the city of Fort Pierce. She made the news in 2016 when she was the lead prosecutor on the case of a teacher charged with sexually abusing eight students, and she won that case. She was also assisting in the ongoing Jeffrey Epstein investigation. Even after he died, Florida's Department of Law Enforcement, FDLE for short, and a state's attorney who was hand-selected by the governor, went over the terms of Epstein's probation and the alleged corruption that was happening, how much money he gave the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, and how the Palm Beach County State Attorney's Office handled the Epstein stuff, so Miss Norman had a hand in all of that. It's kind of like an internal affairs investigation, but among prosecutors instead of among cops. Episode 3 of our series is coming up, and I'm going to bring in a man that will be a key witness at trial. He drove Yanella down to West Palm Beach to pick up the drugs. There was so much fentanyl in it that she never had a chance. This is Dealing Death. We'll be back with more soon.